This text today in Hebrews chapter 6 is really the continuation of what we started last week in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. It's the third of five warnings that are given to the, the Hebrew listeners there, the Jewish people that are living in and around Rome. And just to give a quick recap to those who may have just come in today who haven't been here for a while, Hebrews has the overarching theme that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme to everything. He's supreme. And remember, it's a Jewish writer writing to Jewish listeners. They grew up with a sacrificial system. They grew up with the Judaic practices of going to synagogue, going to the temple, going through the sacrifices every year. That was the way they connected with God. It was not works contrary to what we've been taught. The Old Testament was not works and the New Testament grace. The Old Testament was faith based on a sacrificial system that had to be repeated every year. But it was still faith. In the New Testament, it's a sacrificial system that is only done once. When Christ died on the cross, He was the sacrifice. But we have a lot of misinformation out there that people think the Old Testament was about works and the new testament was about grace the whole thing was grace do you think abraham was saved by works or grace grace the same way we're saved and so the old testament system now there were people within the judaic system who believed that if they worked then god would accept them but there are people today in the baptist church who believe if they're good enough god will accept them there's people within the Catholic Church, within the you know all Protestant churches. It, it, it's not the system that was corrupt. The people had corrupted their view of it. And so this writer is writing to Jewish people who there's three groups represented in the people who are in the audience here. The first group, we've mentioned this before, but the first group is people who have intellectually bought into Jesus. They've left the Judaic system and they've gone all in with Jesus, and now they're part of a faith community. The second group are people that have bought in intellectually. They left Judaism. They came into the faith community, and they realized they're not all in, and they're wanting to go back because they're being persecuted. They're being ostracized by their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so they're wanting to go back to the Judaic practices that are no longer valid. Because when Christ came, He did away with all the Old Testament sacrifice. He fulfilled it all. The Old Testament sacrifices were a... It's like a story, like a picture book being taught to a kindergartner to prepare them to be able to read in high school. And so when the the high school part came, that picture book was no longer valid. It only served a purpose for a time. And so it was pointing forward to Jesus. And now He's come on the scene and they're wanting to go back to that. But they're wanting to go back because they're being persecuted. And they don't like that, so they're going back. And the writer's warning them. He gives them five warnings and we're in the third warning of that. The second, uh, or the third group actually, is a group of people that have not bought in intellectually. They not bought in in their heart. They're still wavering and trying to decide what they want to do. They're trying to decide if they even believe in Jesus as Messiah. And so, those are the three groups represented. Now, the first warning given 
was in chapter 2 and was about drift. And what he said is, be careful, don't drift away. If you drift, you're gonna, you can drift away from the message so much so that your heart becomes hard and you don't want it. And I see that happen a lot in my life when I talk to people and at first they're kind of excited to hear about it and then they start realizing there's a cost involved with following Christ and they go, no, I'm not really there. And then you come back and then they don't even want to talk to you. They don't even want to be around you. They drift so much that they become hardened and they don't even want to be around you when you talk about it. And he's warning them for that in chapter 2. The third chapter, he gives them the second warning and he's saying, don't harden your heart like the children of Israel. And he quotes from Psalm 95. And he says, today if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. And, And that's a direct quote from Psalm 95, which is referencing what happened in Numbers and Exodus when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they had seen everything that God had done and they had walked with God for a moment, but not long term. They had only followed Him for a moment, but I want you to think about what they did. They put blood on their doorpost. They ate the sacrificial lamb. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate the manna. They got water from the rock. They, they were benefactors of God's grace. So unbelievers can benefit from God's grace without being true believers because they were. They did not make it to the promised land. That's the point he's making to this group in that warning. He's saying, don't be like these people who benefited from God's grace because you've been around the faith community. You've actually tasted. You've heard the Word of God. You've heard the Gospel message. And now you're going to go back away from it. There's no hope for you if you do that. If you reject Him, There's no hope. And that's what he's saying to them in the second warning. And then last week, we got into chapter 5 where he gets into the third warning. And he says, don't waver. Don't waver between the world and between Jesus. Be all in with Him. Because here's what wavering does. First, it it really um, makes it hard for you to understand spiritual truth when you waver between the world and not. It hinders your spiritual understanding of truth. You see this book is a way to be better. is a way to have a better life. I hear people on TV preach about this. This will give you a better life. Is that true? Well, it depends on what you mean by better life. If it means my pocketbook's going to be full, my checking account's going to be full, my health is always going to be good, then that's not what this promises, this side of heaven. It never promised that this side of heaven. What it does promise is that you will be in a right relationship with God. And that's the most important relationship you can have in the whole world. And and so he says, be careful of wavering. If you waver, you're not going to understand the whole point of the Bible. You're going to miss it. And that's what happens. People take stuff out of context and they end up getting frustrated with God because they think God doesn't keep His promises. That's what I've heard people say. And it's not true. He has not missed out on any promise He's made because He's God and He's faithful. And this is a story that reveals that. Well, the second thing He told them is wavering delays spiritual service. And by that... What it means is they ought to be teaching people the Word because they were commanded. Remember what Jesus said when He left? He said, as you are going, make disciples, teach them everything 
that I say and that I teach. And I'm with you always. That was a command, not just to them, but even to us. And so if we've been the beneficiaries, if you've been coming to SWAT and you've heard the Gospel, you continue to hear the Gospel, and you're not teaching somebody else, can I just tell you you're in sin? Just plain and simple. Plain and simple. You have a responsibility to be a multiplier. And, and it doesn't matter how little that may be. Uh, some of you guys were in Israel with us. Bob, I told the story last week about Bob, who was there in Israel with us. And Bob struggled. And Bob's okay with me sharing this. He struggled because he's been in SWAT for three years. And when we were over there, he had a battle going on of whether he was going to be baptized or not because he wasn't sure he was all in. But there, that day that we did the baptisms, he said, I'm all in. I want to be all in. I'm all in. And he got dunked and something happened to Bob. Something happened inside of Bob. Because after that, when we go a couple of days later up to another site, Bob's witnessing to Jewish people. Israelis. He'd never done anything like that in his life, but he's trying to tell them. And he says, this guy can tell you. And he gets me to share with them. But he was the instigator of trying to explain to them what was going on and what they needed in Jesus. Now, two days ago, I'm at the YMCA. Bob brings a guy up to me. Hey, Doug, I want you to meet this guy. He's a cycler guy. He's, he rides bicycles a lot. And I was telling him about SWAT and what you guys do. And I was telling him about Israel and I'm telling him about all this stuff. And man, I told him he needs to be a part of this. And so me and this guy talk. This guy's from a Catholic background. Never been part of a men's group. Never been part of a Bible study. Said, I don't even really believe in Catholicism that much. That's just where I was raised. Has no clue. And this is what the guy said. I just want to be around men. I want to be in a men's group. That was his motive. But Bob sees the opportunity to try to get him involved and wants him to be a part. Bob feels a burden to share with him what he's learned. And you know what I thought? I just thought, how come we all aren't inviting guys to come to this for that reason? I mean, serious. Do you know how many men exist around this group of men right here that don't have a regular connection with God? It's unbelievable. And I know it's hard. Listen, I've invited three guys this week and I've been with them. Yeah, I'm going to come. I'm going to come. Text me the last minute. I can't come. But you don't stop. You keep caring. But, but if you waver, it can hinder your spiritual service. And that's what happens a lot of times. The wavering doesn't just have to be with unbelievers. It can be even with us as believers. We can be waver. We let the things of the world get our attention. And pretty soon we forget our priorities. And that's, and that's what he's saying. So these implications, even though he's addressing unbelievers, still can apply to you and me as believers. And then the third thing he said is, the wavering will also stunt your spiritual growth and possibly even your spiritual life. That's what he said in 5, 11 through 14 last week. 
So those were three warnings that he's given, but it continues into chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. And this week, what he's saying is he's warning again against wavering and that true belief, and I'm going to put in parentheses, being all in, produces maturity and growth. If you're all in, it's going to produce maturity and growth. And, and here's the principle. Where there's life, there's growth. Plain and simple, period, end of story. <coughs> Excuse me. If you have life, there's got to be growth and maturity. If you show me somebody, and listen, I've, we've all heard testimonies and stories, or at least a lot of us have. Well, you know, I trusted Christ when I was 12 years old, but I didn't make Him the Lord of my life till I was 40 years old. So you're telling me for 28 years you had no growth? And you were a believer? And the Holy Spirit resided in you and you had no growth for 28 years? I don't believe that. Because my God is bigger than that and He's more faithful than that. If the God of the universe came into your spirit and gave you new birth, He's going to produce fruit and growth. It may not be at the same level as everybody else, but there will be growth because life always produces growth. Period. And that's what he's saying here. And he says that, and I'm going to bring that out in the text. The second thing is, rejecting him confirms those who are apostate. And apostate means, apostasy means you've received the truth, but you've rejected it. You may have walked with it for a while, but ultimately you rejected the truth, and you're an apostate. And we see that in verses 4-6. through six. Then the third thing he says is he's warning against wavering and that his grace falls on good ground and bad ground. And the only thing that differentiates between good ground and bad ground is time. Because time reveals fruit and productivity. And, there, you know, and, and again, the productivity is not necessarily good works. The good works are part of it. But again... It's why people do those good works. It's what those good works reflect. Do they reflect a heart for God or a heart for me just doing good works? There's a lot of people that are going to stand before Him and He's going to say, depart for I never knew you. And they're going to go, but Lord, we did these things, all these spiritual things. He says, I never knew you. And so, and then the fourth thing is finally verses 9-12 through 12, is that He brings models into our life to illustrate what it means to be all in. I guarantee you, if you are an all in person, you're not all in because one day you just go, wow, I want to be all in. And you knew what it would look like. He's brought people in your life to illustrate what it looks like when you're all in. And he says, imitate them. Just like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so that's the, that's the outline for today. Really the, the warning against wavering and he gives us these four truths, really, that true belief produces maturity. Rejecting him confirms apostates. His grace falls on good ground and bad ground. And he brings imitate or models into our life to show us what it looks like to be all in. So let's start in chapter 6, verse 1. So starting in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. 
and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is, in the end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, I want to stop right there because a transition happens in this verse. Verses 1-8, through eight, he's speaking to group 2. He's speaking to the people that are not all in. They profess they're wanting to go back to Judaism and He is warning them. Then in verse 9, He deviates from that and there's two clues in the text that tell us that. The first one is when He says, Beloved. Nowhere in Scripture does the term beloved ever refer to an apostate. Ever. It, it is the word that, from which we get the unconditional love word, agape. And it, this, is, this is a strong term of endearment. And so what the writer's doing, you've got to remember, when they read this text, they don't read it like we do. They don't just take a few verses each week. They started at the beginning of the letter and they read the whole thing. And so you've got the whole faith community there. You've got the believers in group one, the unbelievers, the pretenders in group two, and the group, group that's still trying to figure it out. They're all huddled around listening as this thing is being read. And so the writer at that point stops and he says, listen, though I'm speaking in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, he now addresses the believers. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. If you're an apostate, do you get things that belong to salvation? No. So he's talking to the believers here. And he says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. Apostates do not serve saints. So he's talking to believers and he's saying, I'm talking to you. There's good things that are waiting for you. Then he goes back in verse 11 and now he's talking to the unbelievers again. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. What same earnestness? The same earnestness that you just saw in these people I was talking to. That's what he's talking about there. He's warning those people, look, here's a model. This is what you're supposed to be like. And I want you to have the same earnestness they have so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. <laughs> You see, if you don't understand that little transition there, you can get really confused. And a lot of people have gotten confused about this text. Because it, it would appear, if you're reading this as to believers, and listen, I've read the commentaries, and there's a lot of commentaries that believe he's talking to believers all the way through. I do not believe that based on the text here. 
And the text that we looked in other passages of Scripture throughout, he's, he's going back and forth between these different groups. And if you don't understand that, you could be led to believe from this text that you could lose your salvation. And that is not what he's saying in this text at all. What they would have heard, the listeners would have heard in this text, is he's communicating to a group of people a warning, then he deviates and goes over here to the group that is in one, who are all in, and he's saying, not you, it's not going to be like that with you. You guys got it. Now you people over here, look at them and imitate them. That's what he's saying. And that's so important for us to understand, because if you don't, you get into all kind of confusions about this text. And so, as we look at this, and go back to the first idea in verses 1 and 2. What does he mean when he says, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ? What is he saying? Well, the word leave there is the same word that's used for divorce, separate, to break, break away from. So why would he say, let us leave and break away from the elementary doctrine of Christ? That, that seems almost counterintuitive to being, having somebody follow Christ. Why would he say that? Well, remember what he's been talking about. This group was wanting to go back to Judaism. And he's talking about the elementary doctrine. That's the ABCs of, of Christ. Which Where were the ABCs of Christ? Old yes. The Old Testament. It was the Old Testament law. It was the, it was the sacrificial system that was a shadow of what was to come. And he goes through and he talks about, listen, uh, he goes, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. For the Jewish people, for, for people to come into the, to the Jewish faith, they had to repent. And they were constantly repenting from going away from God. So <clears throat> notice what he says. <clears throat> repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Not faith toward God in Christ, just faith towards God. See, he's saying don't go back to the basics. That was only a picture pointing you forward. And he says, and of instructions about washing. All those things were to, were to look forward to what Christ would do. That word is not even baptized there. It's not about a baptism. It was the ceremonial washing to go into the presence of God. He's saying, don't go back there. You're clean because of Jesus. You don't have to go back to that place. And he says, and the laying on of hands, you know what that means? Remember I told you last week when we were teaching about the sacrifice, remember what would happen? When the Father would bring the lamb that was perfect up to the priest, what did the priest do? He, he took it, and the Father, where did He put His hand? He laid His hands on the animal. And he symbolically transferred his sin to that animal. And then the priest would slit the throat of the animal and then sprinkle the blood and the family's sin was forgiven. He's saying that was all symbolic. Don't go back to the elementary basics. He's saying, because that's for kids. That's for infants. Remember he talked about that last week. All these things are pictures he says, why are you going to go back to the Old Testament pictures and teachings when you have the real thing in Jesus? He's here. He's been on the front. He's, he's been here in front of us. We've seen Him. We've tasted of Him. We don't go back now. He's saying you should be maturing. Now listen, if, if, if most of us in here have grandkids. A lot of us do. 
When we hold our grandchild and we look down at them, we think they're cute and we think, man, they're awesome to hold and everything. And they're, we're holding them and they're like five months old, six months old. And they're cute. But what if they stayed six months old for the next 10, 15 years? We'd go, there's something wrong. What is going on? We would be taking them to the doctor. They're not growing. They're not maturing. And that's what he's saying. Why are you going to go back to that infantile picture of Christ who's coming when Christ is already here? He's saying there's got to be growth. You guys are past that stage. You ought to be buying into it. You ought to be all in. And the fact that you're not all in is, is, is illustrated by the lack of growth and lack of maturity. So where there's life, there's growth, plain and simple. So how does that apply to believers? Can it apply to us? Yes. We can be stagnant as believers. We can be all in, but we're not allowing God to grow us because we waver. And I, you know, Brad and I have had this discussion many, many times. When we get opportunities for God, He brings opportunities in us or to us. And our first response is, I can't do that. I don't have the time to do that. I don't have the money to do that. Why is that? That that's our default. It should be. You know, you know when I was in the Marine Corps, when, when, when you got an opportunity to go do something, everybody wanted to go to Desert Storm when it happened. We weren't sitting back going, I hope they don't send me. I hope they don't send me. I hope they don't send me. You know why? Because we were trained to do that. That was our mission. It was Nobody was sitting there going, man, I hope they don't send me. I hope they don't send me. Everybody in the squadron wanted to go over there because that was what we were trained to do. It was our mission. Why is it in the church that when we have opportunities to minister, we go, I hope they'll send Brad because I don't want to go. Or David, man, send David over there because I, I mean that that that's a good opportunity for you, Dave, not for me. And that's exactly what we do as believers who've tasted and not just tasted, we've actually been born again. We have the Spirit in us. We've achieved a level of growth, but we hit a point and we just go, we're, we're stagnant because we're not we're not all in, and we we, we waver. We're wavering because the enemy comes along and tells us, well, if you do this, it's going to cost you. For even as believers, we can waver. And so even though this is applying to unbelievers, there's an application for us even as believers. Every time you get a chance to be all in, jump all in. Don't sit back. Don't calculate. And you go, well, that's foolish. Well, of course it's foolish. It's foolish to leave the FBI when, when you've got a great career going. And everything's going awesome. And the only reason you're leaving is because you sense God wanting you to leave and go be in ministry full time. That doesn't make any sense. So much so that the head of the FBI office called my wife and me into his office to tell her what a bad decision I was making and how awful it was. That's how it made no sense. And as we shared the gospel with him and told him why we were doing, he goes, well, you know what? I don't need religion. I've done pretty well for my life, my life. And I don't need that. And I, I've told you guys a story. What happened the next day? He was arrested. The very next day, he was arrested because he oversaw the Ruby Ridge 
investigation and he shredded documents to protect agents and he went to jail for a year even though he was a supervisor in the FBI. Yeah, he'd done pretty good. And what was Jesus doing? He was merciful. He was showing him, well, you haven't done as good as you thought you've done. Because I'm telling you, anybody who's been in jail or knows people who've been in jail, you don't sit in a jail cell, even at a minimum security prison, and think, I'm a pretty good person. You think, what in the world have I done? you got to be all in. And when you're all in, you're going to see life and you're going to see growth. Well, the second thing he says in verses 4 through 6 is this rejecting him confirms apostasy. He says in here, now this is where it can get confusing if you think this applies to a believer. He's not ta- he's talking to the second group here. He says, for it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have t- tasted the heavenly gift who've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've, in other words, the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth to them in the sense of this is who Jesus was. He was Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He fulfilled the prophecies. He went to the cross. He died. He was a sacrifice. And they get it up here. So much so that they left Judaism for a, for a time. But you see, they followed Jesus not for who He was, but for what He could do for them. They wanted to use Him. Remember on the shores after Jesus had fed 5,000 people, all these people wanting to follow Him, wanting Him to make Him king? He said, the only reason you're following Me is because I fed your belly. You're not following Me because you know who I am and what you need. You're only following Me for your personal gain. And what happened is, it says many of them left after that. Remember He turns to Peter and He says, Peter, you going to leave too? And the disciples, and they go, where else are we going to go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. And there's a marked difference between apostates and believers who fall. Because you can be a believer and fall pretty hard. Look at Peter. He fell really hard. He denied Jesus three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. So he fell hard. But Peter was no Judas. There's a difference between an apostate and a falling believer. And he's here dealing with apostates. Don't miss that. He's talking to people who have been given the truth and who've rejected the truth even though they've seen it, they get it, but they reject it. And there's a verse in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, and in that passage around verse 24, Jesus has been healing people. And you know what the leaders say? The religious leaders said, He's not casting out demons by God. He's healing people by the power of who? Beelzebub. Baal. Satan. Yeah. And Jesus says, you know what? You can be forgiven for anything except for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And what, you know what that is? That is when the Holy Spirit gives you revelation of who Jesus is and you reject it. That's the only thing you can't be forgiven for. You can be forgiven for murder. You can be forgiven for adultery. You can be forgiven for anything but rejecting Jesus. It's the only thing you can't, can't be forgiven for. And that's an apostate. And so when you look at that, and you think, well, man, that makes me... Look at the children of Israel. Remember the illustration He gave them back in chapter 3. They placed the blood on the doorpost. They ate the bread. They drank from the rock. They followed the cloud for a while. 
But they never went into the promised land because they never had the faith in God. It was always about the faith. Trust. It was about trust. And, and so when we hear that as believers, we can go, well, man, I don't know. What about me? Do I really have faith? Do I trust? Can I lose my salvation? You know, that's not what he's saying here. And I want to point out some verses in Scripture to help you with that. First of all, Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be what? Will be faithful to continue. Be, yeah, be faithful to complete it. Until the day of Jesus. He will be faithful. Romans 8.38 says nothing can separate us from the love of God. No powers, no principalities, nothing. Nothing. Jude 24 says He is faithful to keep us from stumbling and present us as blameless. 1 John 2.19 tells us about the difference between a Judas and a Peter. 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us because they were never really part of us. You see, when somebody becomes an apostate, it doesn't matter how convincing they were as a professing believer. What matters is, what kind of fruit have they produced in their life? Some of you guys may remember, I shared a story about a Baptist pastor that was with me in Kazakhstan. 20 years as a minister. And he's over there and he finds Christ and realizes he hadn't been all in. It's all been about him. As a minister for 20 years, everybody that he talked to or that he would have known would have said, of course he's all in. He's a pastor. He's preaching every week. He's given his life to this. He went to seminary. So it doesn't matter those kind of things. What matters is the fruit in your life. The fruit is an indicator. It's not what earns us into heaven, but it shows the faith that we have. And I'm going to point that out in just a second. The last verse I want to give you about the security issue is in John 10, 27, 28, it says, My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice and they follow. You see, for the shepherds, the shepherds in Israel always led by their voice But in the West, we like to be led by our eyes. We like to control everything. God says, I want you to go over here, Greg. I want you to do this. And you go, okay, let me make sure I can control that situation and it's okay. Let me make sure I have the right resources. Let me make sure that it's going to work out with my schedule. Let me make sure all these things are working out and then I'll do it, Lord. That's exactly what we do in the West. We operate by eyes, not by sight. I mean, not by ears or faith. And he says, my people hear my voice and they follow. And that's why when God says, Doug, you know what? I think you ought to go to the Philippines. And I say, okay, God, I don't know how we're going to do that, but I'm going to do that. And I said, but I, I, would you just affirm it to me by Letting, letting there be 12 of us that go. And guess how many guys went? 12 of us went. See, God's okay with you asking, God, you know what? I want to do this, but I want you to affirm how I'm going to do it or show me this. Or, or maybe, Lord, I don't even know what you want me to do, but I'm, I'm willing. Just show me. He wants that. What He doesn't like, oh, is when you put up barriers to Him when He tells you to do something. 
He, you put up barriers to Him instead of uh, opportunities coming. How does God speak to us? I've never in 58 years heard His audible voice. Ever. But I do hear Him speak through His Word. I do hear Him speak through circumstances. I do hear Him speak through other believers in my faith community. And I just want you to think about it. When you have opportunities, whether it's to go to a Bible study, to go be part of an outreach over on the north side, or to go to Israel, or to go to India, wherever it is, is your first response always, let me check to see if I can work it out. Or is it, okay, I want to do this. God, you're going to have to show me why I shouldn't do this. We should jump at opportunities to serve Him and opportunities to put faith on display to people. And he's saying to these people, listen, His grace falls on good and bad ground, and the only way to tell the difference between the two is fruit that comes out of it. Because if it's thorns and thistles that come out of it, and you go, well, what's a thorn and thistle? I'm convinced that's not evil. That's not immorality. You know what that is? I think that's, that's people thinking they're good enough on their own. I think that's good works. But it's not good works done because He wants you to do them. That's good works thinking you're earning your favor with Him. See, the reason that we do good works of faith is not to earn His favor. The reason we do them is because we have His favor already because of Jesus. And that makes a huge difference in the way we live our life. And I, again, I go back to Peter and Judas. If you look at Judas' life, what did Jesus call him in John 6.70? He said he's... The devil, yeah. Yeah. In John 17, 12, he called him the son of destruction. He had his number pegged all along. He knew who he was. He knew he was apostate. The disciples didn't. They were still wondering at the end who it was. And that's why when you look at that, you look at the Scriptures and you look at these things, you go... Am I all in? Am I, am, am I not all in? I mean, God's certainly pouring down His grace, and why wouldn't I be all in if He's done all this for me? And then he goes into verse 9 and 12, and he, 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 says, he says, but not you, you people over here. I know your works. I see what you're doing. And you, 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 you're all in. And you people over here, I want you to watch them. And imitate them so that you can partake of the same thing. He brings models into our life to demonstrate what it means to be all in. And and notice what he says here. He says, He says, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end, so that you may not be sluggish. And go back to verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. Why does He talk about work there instead of faith? Because faith is demonstrated in our works. James says, if you don't have the works, there must not be any faith. Because faith without works is a dead faith. And remember, nothing dead produces life. Life always matures. And so as we look at this and think about imitators that God's brought into your life, I think about, I can name at least 30 or 40 people that He's brought into my life that I've actually thought, man, I want to follow Jesus like they do. 
I want to be just like them. Not because they're perfect, but because I see in people a heart to want to follow Jesus. And I can tell you, John Monger was one of those guys. I can't imagine being in a jail cell, being beaten and having somebody tell me, if you deny Jesus, you can walk out. I just can't even imagine that. And I look at John and I see a guy who I've never heard complain one day that I've been around him, ever. I've known him for 12 years. And he's had nothing. And we live in a country where we have everything and we complain all the time. And his perspective about all this stuff because he's all in. He said, I'm all in. I knew when he called me, I was all in. And so it's not getting theologically trained. It's not sitting in the Bible studies. It's just saying to God, God, I'm all in and you got me. You got my heart. Just tell me what you want me to do. And we'll stumble through it. But the beautiful part is when you stumble like Peter stumbled, he was always there to catch him. Always. When Peter stepped out of the boat and he looked at him and he walked on water for a second, but then he got his eyes off of him and on the storm and he started to sink, what did Jesus do? He just grabbed him and he said, I got you, Peter. You almost had it. You almost had it, Peter. But Peter did something that 11 other guys didn't do. They stayed in the boat. I want to be one of the guys that's going to step out of the boat. I promise you, if you go all in with him and you step out of the boat and he ain't wanting you to step out of the boat, he will gently put you right back in the boat. But man, I don't want to stand before God one day and him say, Mike or Doug or Amos, whoever we are standing before him, I don't want to hear him say, and I know you don't want to hear him say, I gave you all these opportunities, but you always had an excuse why you couldn't be all in. Why? Why? Are we all in? We're the only ones that can answer that. We're the only ones that can answer that. Am I all in? Or am I wavering? Being all in doesn't mean perfect. It means being surrendered. That's what it means. I'm surrendered. I'm far from perfect. I blew it yesterday again, man. I blow it, I blow it every day with my wife, my kids, somebody. But I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered. And I know that I have no place else to go but Jesus. And I love Him. And I, I owe Him everything. And I'm all in. You're not going to have any question about my being all in with Him. Ever. Ever. Because I'm all in. And I, I, I mean, I've told Him, I would rather Him take my life than me compromise on that. I don't want to be uh, wavering between the world, Hellenism and Him kind of person. I want to be His person. Because He deserves that. He deserves it. So, let's pray.